so expertly. Did you practice that? That was wonderful. Brad and I have each other's back. I hope you see it. Uh, hey, everybody. Hey, yo. Uh, hey, everybody watching online, too. It's good to see you. Uh, I, um, summer is, a, is an interesting time. Uh, because so much of it's exciting, so much of it is sunshine and, and, and whatnot, but then so much of it wears on you too. And uh, if you've had kids who've been playing baseball like my kids, um, they're all done with baseball. Like the heat of Kansas is just too much for them. They're done. Even um, some, my, my kid yesterday came back inside from swimming in the pool. She was done. She said, I'm done swimming forever. Oh no! Have you ever been done before? Have you ever have you ever gotten to that point where you've just maxed out, tapped out? You're just done. Uh, years ago, I was uh, I was running a canoe trip down the Mississippi River uh, with middle school students. I love uh, our camps that we do here at Heartland for middle school and high school students. I used to run camps like that. And one of them was a, 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 a canoeing trip down the Mississippi River. And um, I, I was the main guide on this trip, so I was the last canoe. You know what I mean? Like you're the guy that's got to make sure you bring up the rear and uh, make sure everyone gets delivered uh, safely. But this was an easy trip to take with middle school students because it was literally like a, a launch and catch initiative. You just launch kids out and the Mississippi River just carries the canoes down. It's the seat, like the little trick of like being an adult for kids. It was like, you don't even have to do anything. It's just going to carry you down there. Don't worry about it. And so we would launch them. The real trick was like being at the, the, the pullout site. The people in the water had to like actually catch the kids because I don't know if you've been on the Mississippi River lately, but it kind of moves quickly. And uh, it was a little treacherous. If you missed the canoe, it could actually get by you quite far. And then you'd be in a, a whole world of trouble. So the real, the real trick was the people on the catch side. I was on the launch side. That was a piece of cake. We hiked down one day to the Mississippi River. I should tell you, I was the main leader on this trip, but sometimes like leaders do, I had never taken the trip. And I've got a good sense of direction. I kind of know my whereabouts. I know that the Mississippi River runs from north to south. I kind of understand how this works. But we took this hike out to the, to the, the launch, the boat ramp, and I looked at the river, and I instinctively knew the launch is going to shoot us. We want to go this way, but the water, for whatever reason, was flowing that way. And I looked at someone and I said, is it flowing south to north today? We would come to find out that actually, yes, there had been so much rain that we didn't pay attention to. The whole river had reversed course. And so uh, being ignorant and going, it'll be fine. We started launching kids, you know, like a, a 12-year-old out into the Mississippi River. And, and, and so I'm the last one in. I've got my buddy Damien. Damien's a kid from the inner city of Chicago. He had never really ever been outside of Chicago. He, he was the youngest kid at camp. He was nine at a middle school camp. And Damien was having the greatest time of his life. And he got to be, got to be in the, the, the slow canoe with me, which was going to be great. And so we started shoving kids out. And they started drifting not this way, but this way. And we were yelling to him from the side of the, the, the river, hey, you guys got to paddle, <laughs> you know, like you got to try and like do it. And, and some of the canoes started to figure it out. They started to make process and Damien and I launched out together and we drifted the wrong way. And I thought to myself, well, that's all right. I'm kind of a, I grew up on the water. I'm, I'm good with, nav I can figure this out. It'll be fine. And I started putting my, uh, my paddle in the water and pushing and Damien was just sitting there. You ever have a canoe partner whose paddle is just on the canoe? <laughs> Damien's like, I don't know what to do, man, and I don't, I don't like this. This is boring. 
And I go, hey, Damien, do you think you could paddle, buddy? And he goes, five solid strokes. One, two, three, four, five. And then he rests. <laughs> and in the meantime, we're all realizing we had stepped into a war zone. Because I got canoes flying everywhere, it did not make the Instagram highlight reel of the trip, this catastrophe of a river experience. I had canoes be behind me, and so I had to go paddle and push them forward. And we did this. It's a mile, a mile canoe trip for this day. And, and by a quarter of a mile down, nobody was getting anywhere. In fact, I had uh, college guys who had abandoned their boats and started to walk their canoes down the Mississippi River instead of paddling them. It was chaotic. And Damien, after about an hour and a half of going a quarter of a mile, I, I saw him do something. I, 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 he started to get over the edge of the canoe, which was really tricky for me because I was like, dude, stop riding the boat, but he got over the edge of the canoe and he started to paddle with all of his might. And I was like, oh, finally, like we're getting somewhere. And, and then I realized he wasn't helping me steer. He had a direction in mind. This little nine-year-old had, had pirated my canoe and I couldn't do anything to stop him. And he was pushing towards an island that was in the middle of the river. And he got us to the island. He ran us ashore. He got out of the canoe. He took off his little life vest, you know, the, like the little lame life vest that we make kids wear and he put it on the ground and he lied in the fetal position and he looked up at me with total sincerity in his voice and in his eyes he goes Dan we're never gonna make it leave me here to die <laughs> Damien was done I don't know if you've ever been done. We've all had these momentary blips in life of being done. Uh, sometimes done is uh, just a moment, right? You, you've, you've realized that what you bit off is more than you could chew, and so you just decided to abandon the project. But sometimes done is a season. You've uh, realized that the destination that you're aiming for is a little bit beyond where you can actually go. The obstacles are too strong. The, the, your power is too weak. Your will becomes worn down. You are done. And sometimes we're done because we're exhausted. Sometimes we're done be, because we're tired. Sometimes we're done because you can't imagine any progress in the situation that you're facing that's really difficult. Maybe you've been done with a relationship that's gone nowhere for a long time. Time and time again, you have exerted energy, you have exerted effort, but the other person has not reciprocated. And like Charlie Brown pulling the football, or Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown, you're like, how many times do I have to be in this? You're done. Maybe you're done with a job. Maybe you've been in school for so long and it's been so difficult that you've given up your educational pursuits even though they would unlock for you something incredible. Let's be really honest, maybe you're done with church. Maybe you're watching today online in, 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 a, in a private place in your house because the idea of coming to a church building is so hard for you, it's so difficult because of the pain that ex existed in the prior place. You've asked yourself this question, where is God in the midst of this? Sometimes our lives can feel vibrant. Sometimes our lives can feel like a wilderness. Like you're on an island of a bank of a river and you can't imagine getting any further or life getting any better. 
Here's the, here's the question that I, I have for us all today. This is the, kind of the question of the series that we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. What does God do when we are done? When, when we have come to a place in our lives where we've checked out of the progress, where we've given up the fight, so to speak, what is God's posture to us when we're done? What does God do when we're done? Where is God in my hardship? Where is God in my pain? Where is God in my broken heart? Where is God in my fear? When my life feels more like the valley of the shadow instead of the top of a meadow, where is God? There's a story out of Israel's history. I'd love for you to look at it with me. We're going to actually spend the entire next three weeks just looking at this one very short story. I kind of love this form of preaching. It's very, um, just, just we're going to walk through a story of, of someone's life. And um, it's about the prophet Elijah. His mission in life, his fight in life was great until it wasn't. Elijah was sent by God to challenge the wickedness of King Ahab. And in, um, Elijah's story is found in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 19. If you want to Google that, pull that up. Um, he, he was sent to challenge this wicked king in Israel. God had put him on a mission to bring back the nation to God, not the foreign gods that had been uh, installed in Israel. A, see, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel? Um, you've heard of Jezebel? She's in a lot of uh, hip-hop music. <laughs> well, if you were a church person, you grew up, um, you, you grew up and you heard, uh, uh, you, if you're a, a, a woman, you didn't want to ever be called Jezebel, because she it meant you were a woman who had a spirit about her. That's how you'd say in the church. That's like the code, the code in the church world, where if you're, you're dating someone and your mom says, oh, she's got a spirit about her that I don't know, she's a Jezebel. No good. No good. You don't want to be a Jezebel. Ahab and his wife Jezebel had en enacted um, a, a theological reform throughout all of Israel. They rejected Israel's God, Yahweh, and instead they adopted this pagan fertility God, Baal. To represent their rule and their glory, Ahab and Jezebel had installed 450 prophets of Baal who acted as leaders of the people. They, they, they settled disputes. They were kind of like uh, judges, so to speak. They urged the common worship of Baal. And just like you and I don't like it when someone that we love cheats on us, God doesn't stand for it either. And so God sent Elijah to wage war on Ahab and the prophets. Elijah did just that. He showed up in Ahab's courtroom one day and he, he, he declared, there's going to be no more rain until I say so, so that you know who God is. And Ahab, this powerful king, this, this, this wealthy king, this successful king, laughed Elijah out of his courtroom. He said, did you hear what this guy said? There's going to be no, he's going to stop the rain. There's a big storm came through here just the other day. I imagine um, you trying to go outside and, and, and looking at that storm and going, stop, right? I mean, that's the idea. It's foolishness. Until week after week, there was no rain. And all of a sudden, month after month, the crops have deteriorated. And Ahab was no longer laughing. He was angry. The fears of a drought hit the evening news and political pressure started to be put on Ahab. And the months turned into years. And in the midst of the years, Ahab and Jezebel, 
were not taking Elijah's threats lying down. They were actively trying to find him and kill him. They were putting to death all of the prophets of Yahweh because of this drought that Elijah had inflicted upon the land. And then after three years, maybe you know the story. After three years, God shows up to Elijah and says, it's time to go back, show yourself to Ahab and tell him you're going to duel him. You're going to fight him. You're going to prove once and for all who God is. And so Elijah musters up the courage and the faith in God to go back, even against the, uh, uh, the advice of, of the, king's, um, the, the king's men. They look at Elijah and say, he's going to kill you. And Elijah says, hey, I'm here to let him know who God is. And so he offers an epic duel. He says, hey, uh, Ahab, uh, let's all go up to the top of Mount Carmel. You bring all the prophets that you have, and I myself will represent Yahweh. All the prophets of Baal can try and get Baal to receive a sacrifice. And I, the lone prophet of Yahweh, will try to get Yahweh to receive a sacrifice. And we will see who is God. And so this is what they do. All of Israel, we're told, shows up on the mountain to watch. And, and, um, and, and, and the, the prophets of Baal, they put a, a calf on the altar and they start to pray to Baal. And nothing happens. And Elijah starts to throw pro-grade shade over all of them. He's like, well, where's your God now? Is he sleeping? He even goes, he goes, hey, maybe he's in the restroom. You should, you should go and see if he's, you know, relieving himself. That's just pro-grade Old Testament shade right there. And then Elijah says, okay, you guys have had your turn. Give me mine. It's a drought. He gets 12 buckets of water, dumps it upon the sacrifice, and he prays an earnest prayer. God in the presence of everybody, it's kind of a summary. God in the presence of everybody, would you make your name known? Show us that you are God, you're alive. And immediately fire comes down from heaven. And, 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 and the, the uh, New Testament reads, or the Old Testament reads like this. Then the fire of the Lord fell. It burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. Have you ever tried to burn stones? Also, I love this description, licked up the water in the trench. You can kind of imagine what the sound was of this fire. I'm not going to do it. That'd be disgusting. <clears throat> when all the people saw this, look at Elijah's victory here. Look at God's victory. They fell prostrate. That means they fell on their faces. They, they, they said, woe is, woe are we? We've made a mistake. They cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord he is God. It goes back to what Brad just led us through. The Lord reigns. Elijah had eliminated all the unjust prophets of Baal. Literally, one of the hardest things in, in the Bible is the next verse that says, Elijah had the prophets of Baal put to death. Once he did that, all the, the, the heavens opened up and rain again fell on the land. And if this is where Elijah's story ended, this is, would be a very easy, happily ever after. But King Ahab and Jezebel, they didn't appreciate this type of rebellion against their power. Actually, verse 1 of chapter uh, 19 tells us this. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. It probably was not a very happy meeting. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say this. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. 
Everybody say, ooh, right? May the God, she still doesn't think that Yahweh is God. She's still convinced that Baal and, and their false gods are God. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I don't know about you, but if I called down fire from heaven on a water-saturated sacrifice and everything got consumed, even the stones on which the sacrifice was sitting, I don't think I would be afraid of anything. I, I mean, you come at me, I'd be like, dude, did you see me call down fire from heaven, bro? Your bones aren't as hard as those stones. It'll take care of you. And isn't it true that sometimes the greatest fears of our life are not settled by our successes? That though we can see God do great things in our life, it still doesn't take care of the fear that can creep into our souls. And Elijah does something unpredictable for us. After his conspicuous success, he runs into a woman who is as fiercely committed to Baal as Elijah was to Yahweh. And knowing that for three years she has been killing people like him without any sort of remorse. Knowing that this is not political theater, knowing that this is actually a threat against his life. She catches Elijah's ear exactly when he was emotionally exhausted and depleted. And she says to him, hey, 24 hours, Elijah, it's you or it's me. You have 24 hours before I kill you. See, Elijah had just won a battle, but he was still in the midst of a war. And so he ran. Literally, he ran south of the border into the wilderness all by himself, he ran. And he ran for a whole day until he could run no more. Look at verse four of what happens. Uh, he came to a broom bush. It's kind of like a, like a cypress tree, I think is what that is. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. Done, he said, I'm done. If it feels to you like more is going on beneath the surface of the story, there is. Elijah's physical exhaustion and his emotional exhaustion and his spiritual exhaustion all had worked together to fuel fear. And fear made Elijah forfeit his fight. Fear has the capacity in our lives to, to, to get us out of the fight that we're in and to give up. Ironically, Elijah fled from Jezebel in an attempt to save his life, only to, in the fleeing for his life, realize that his life was now to him just as worthless as it was to her. And Elijah, in his fear, gave up the fight. The New Testament author um, of, of Hebrews thought very highly of Elijah. He's one of the most foremost prophets in the Old Testament. But Elijah is not alone as a prophet of God or as a Christian even. When he said, God, take my life. I'm no better than those who have come before me. 
Moses was once deeply discouraged with God. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, Moses also complains to God. He says, if this is how you're going to treat me, why don't you just kill me? Jonah, a little bit after Elijah, saw the whole city of Nineveh return to God, only for him to climb a mountain that overlooked the city and to cry despondently that he was sorrowful enough to die. For Elijah, despite being a historically larger-than-life figure, he was in many ways like those who came before him, and in many ways like us who came after him. His fear made him forfeit his fight. This week, our pastors were discussing this, um, this, this story, and um, one of our pastors, uh, Sagan, who oversees our, our middle schoolers, she, she said it this way. I thought it was really great. She said, fear is like a magnifying glass where it, it overemphasizes one part of a situation so that you can no longer see the bigger picture. One part of what you're looking at becomes more enlarged than everything else and it crowds out the big picture. You can't understand clearly what's happening. Your fear makes you focus in on one thing specifically. And Elijah forfeited his mission. He tried to save his own life. And, and, and once he came to the place where he could actually stop his only conclu conclusion is to agree with Jezebel that he'd be better off dead. His fear had focused him on his significance and his failure. Isn't it true, if you've ever been in the wilderness, we get so twisted up, don't we? In the, in the canoe where you're fighting against the, the stream, you start to think crazy things. Like, I will never get to my destination. I'd rather die. And this is what it means for us to be human. So many of us know exactly what Elijah experienced. You, listen, as a pastor, we have a particular view to people's life in pain. Even this week. I'm glad for Brad's positive meetings, but I had a couple negative meetings. Praying over a wife who has terminal cancer who passed away yesterday talking to people whose familial relationships have been so screwed up for so many years that they're done. They don't want to see family anymore. You know this pain. You know what this looks like. When the voice of fear becomes more catalytic to you than the voice of God, and you're in the wilderness wondering, where, God, are you? I'm done. Can you be done? Last year in May, we kicked off a series called Mindful. I shared with you one of the statistics of life in America is that roughly a third of adults in their life will experience one major depressive episode. It's a wilderness of pain and fear and disappointment. And in the fog is when people are tempted to forfeit our one God-given fight. If that's you, I want you to tune in to what happens with Elijah. Elijah had given up. And the, the rest of the story proves this simple principle that while we might be done with God, God is never done with us. That's really good news. I know that this is like a, a heavy moment, but I hope in your heart you'd say that's good. While we might be done with God, God is never done with us. You know, I've taken our, my time in telling us this story this moment uh, to help us 
remember that the mission of God that he's working on through all of us is that God is never done with his people. You you can curse God, you can quit God, you can run away from God, but God has a tenacity about him that has yet to run out even thousands of years after Elijah had quit. Even in the wilderness, God takes care of Elijah. I want you to see this all at once. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. That's wild. I love how the author of 1 Kings does not, even for a second, try to explain this to us. He just takes it for granted. An angel showed up, poked him, said, get up, breakfast is served. (laughs) I imagine this is a groggy moment. Um, I ran just a couple miles yesterday and I woke up today like dead. He ran probably like dozens of miles and I wonder what he was like when he woke up and he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. That means there was a camp set up. This angel had, had gathered and had prepared and was there even while he was sleeping and had brought a jar of water. He ate and he drank and then he laid down again. Suddenly, that's all at once is what the, the verse says, suddenly. Whenever the word suddenly shows up in the, in the Old Testament, it says, it means that God is about to substantially change his situation. All at once, the angel touched him. You know, it took Elijah a day and a half to get to the outskirts of Israel to the, to the bush where he chose for himself to die. But it only took God a split second to show up and send someone Elijah's way. And the message of the angel is deep and profound if you have ears to hear it. The message of the angel is simply this. Get up. Eat. (laughs) If you're in a wilderness, I want you to know that that advice is true for us today too. Sometimes in the midst of life being so hard and your heart being so broken and not being able to see the, the way forward, what God wants for you is to get up, like off the couch, (laughs) out of bed, to just stand up and to go eat. All the people who love food said, and all the people who love sleep said, this uh, passage I've learned, a lot of people have heard this, where, um, um, you know, God just wants you to have a nap and get a snack. All your problems go away with a nap and a snack. I remember um, during our Mindful series when we were talking about why Jesus cares about your mental, mental health, I was struck by how positive for you eating good food is and being physically active. It's one of those things where it's like, duh, right? But you have to hear this every once in a while. Like, dude, eat and get up. The angel prepared for Elijah the same exact food that for three years God had prepared for Elijah when he was hiding out from Jezebel. And I wonder if in that moment when Elijah saw the food, the same food that the widow in Zarephath would have given him if, if he, he looked at it and realized, I'm done, but God's not. Here's the translation. You might have given up on yourself, but God is never giving up on you. There is more to come today of what God has given you before. 
You came here to die, Elijah, but life support has shown up with a hot meal and a glass of cold water. You know, it tells me this, that God sees and cares and can meet all of my needs, even in the wilderness. God does that today in our lives, today, when, when, when you're not in the wilderness. But how comforting is it for us to know that what God does for you now, he can do for you tomorrow. Now, I know there are people listening to my voice right now who need these words, get up and eat. Elijah's problems were large. They were life-threatening. They were future-erasing. Elijah wanted to disappear, but what he needed was simply to be refreshed. And if you're in the wilderness today, friend, God is still able to meet all your needs. Uh, the text in 1 Kings tells us that Elijah took it. He ate. He drank. And then he laid down again. Um, it's important because he didn't wage a hunger strike. He simply received. The part that's missing in my mind is the dialogue. You know, Elijah's protest. Elijah's who are you? <laughs> Elijah's fear of are you here to kill me? Elijah's grabbing for his Smith and Wesson. Elijah's self-preservation moment. None of it is recorded. He simply looks, takes, and eats. I think if I was Elijah, I'd have a couple questions. Who sent you? Would be the first question. Are you, are you from Ahab? Are you friend or foe? Are you the police? Are you for God? Are you for Baal? What do you want from me? Where are you going next? Did you poison this? <laughs> I'd have a million questions. But here's what we learn from Elijah. is in the wilderness... God will give us rations before he gives us rationales. Ooh, I like the way that sounds. God will give you rations before he gives you rationales. Isn't it true of us in hard times? We have a million questions, mostly why questions. Why me? What's next? What will happen? How could this happen? But, but mostly the why. Why God if you're good? Why God me? Why out of all the people? And I'm sure Elijah had his questions for God, but God simply made him breakfast and said, this is what you get. This is what you need. Here you go. One of the hardest shifts to make when we're living in the wilderness of life is the shift from asking and interrogating to simply accepting. We ask, where is God? And what we really need to be doing is looking around and going, what has God still given to me? today. It's one of the hardest shifts for us to make, but this is what Elijah shows us, is that when we've given up, God hasn't. I don't know if, if you're here today and you're crushing it, and, and I'm talking about a wilderness, and you have no clue what that feels like. You're, you're um, loving your job, you're running faster mile times than ever, your, your kids are great, you're more excited for the future than you've ever been, you're in a relationship with someone that you really like and it's going well. You might be here crushing it. I want to encourage you that if that all changed tomorrow and you woke up and you found yourself in a wilderness, you could do this. You could watch for the ration, not the rationale. All of us desperately crave a reason. When God says, here's what's going to sustain you is what you get from me. 
There's this moment in the modern epic, The Hunger Games. It's always stayed with me. I, I love, I really love these books and I don't talk about them enough. I always talk about Star Trek and all those things, but The Hunger Games is incredible. Um, it's stayed with me. Katniss is, is in the arena. I, I don't know if you know the story and I'm just gonna blaze through it. She's in the arena. She's looking for help from Haymitch, who's her mentor. Um, all the other contestants are getting gifts from their mentors. She hasn't received anything that's gonna help her. All she needs is water. And she's like despondent about it. And she's like, come on. Like she's angry at him, wondering like, why haven't you sent me just a little 20 ounce bottle of water? And she stops for a moment. And in her frustration, she reasons, well, he's on my side. He can see more than I can see. If I needed it as badly as I think I did, he would have sent it, but he hasn't. And in the midst of her stopping and assessing the situation, it hits her. He hadn't sent what she wanted because she was already so close to what she needed. That if she just looked around the bend, she'd find a river of pure water. And so that's what she did. She started to move and she got up and she finds the water and she was refreshed. Friends, God is on your side even when you're not on his. God knows what you need. And our encouragement today is look for the ration, not the rationale. I think it's no mistake that Jesus, when he came and he talked to us about worry in this life, he pointed to the birds of the air and the flowers, the wild flowers that grow out in the wilderness. He said, if God can care for these and make them grow, can he care for you? You see, what we, what we find from Elijah is this really, really, really simple truth in this whole entire story. Is that bringing life from death is kind of what God does. The whole entire land had died because of the rain and God sent life back to it and rain back to it. And all of a sudden there were water and flowers and fields. Elijah wanted to give up his life and die. And there the angel showed up and said, you're not dying today on my watch. Here's some food, here's some water. Get up, eat, go lay down. We're gonna get you to the next mile marker in your mission. I love that Jesus didn't forfeit his fight. You know, I, I think about how God's landscape is lively even in the wilderness. And how Jesus, when he went and faced the king who threatened him with his life, he didn't run away. He didn't run to the wilderness. He didn't give up the mission that God had given him because it, the hardest thing in the world was about to happen to him. He simply trusted God and said, I've got what I need to do what we need to do. I trust you. Let's take the next step. And because Jesus did that, God's whole death to life thing happened for all of us. And that's a comfort for me to know that even in the hard moments of life, when I'm done, I can look to the cross of Jesus, the wilderness of, of his burial for three days and be reminded that God has a future, even when it doesn't feel like it. Let me finish the canoe story that I started out with. 
Damien's on the ground. I kind of, um, in my 26-year-old wisdom at that moment, kneeled down next to him and said, buddy, I know this is really hard, but can you get back in the canoe with me? Because staying here is really not an option. And if you'll let me, there's a place in the canoe that's not all the way at the front where you have to paddle. You could just sit, sit right in the middle. You could put your paddle in there and you don't have to do a thing. Just let me get us to where we need to go. And he looked at me and he said, all right. I wish you would have said something more profound because it made that moment of the story better. He just goes, all right. So we got in the canoe and he let me paddle him back to where we started out to go. And it took us a really long time. I will never canoe again. In fact, that was my last canoe trip. <laughs> that's a true story. But friends, that's the picture. I don't know where you're at. Maybe today you're in the valley, you're done. I just wonder if you'd have the boldness like Elijah to tell that to God and then just invite him to, to take care of you to let him get you to where you know you need to go, to help you move through the wilderness and back to his promised land. Maybe today you just need to ask for bread and sleep. Maybe for others of us, you're, you're, you're past a pretty big wilderness in your life. You know that God can be trusted because you've seen this play out. Today as we leave here, I want you to be echoing those moments of victory in your heart to rehearse those moments of victory today, to be reminded of what God's brought you through, the hardest thing that you didn't think you could make it, but somehow step after step, moment after moment, God has taken care of every one of your needs, emotionally and spiritually and relationally. God has carried you. And that's something to celebrate. I wanna pray over us right here, right now, because the wilderness can be a place where our minds get messed up. And we come back to God just simply by talking to him. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna just pray over you and then afterwards I'm gonna dismiss you. And, and, and actually, if you're in a wilderness right now, I don't want you to leave. Um, we're gonna play beautiful piano music and we're gonna have people to pray up at the front. And I would love for you to just stay and fight a little bit with God in prayer. Okay, so that's what we're gonna do right now. God. Being done is not a theory. For many of us, it's our reality. Don't know how we can take another step. Don't know what the future looks like. Real life-threatening obstacles are in our way and we don't know where you are. And so we're asking, where are you? What are you up to? And in the midst of this, God, we know you're around us. We see this time and time again. Help our eyes to be trained to see you and not the magnifying glass of fear. Help our eyes to be trained to see how good you are, even in the hard. God, help us to trust in some way that you're carrying us and help, our, help us, God, to, to find you when we're afraid. God, for my brothers and sisters here in this room, watching online, listening to the sound of my voice, who are, who are, who are hurting. God, would you be the God that provides? We so desperately want a rationale, but we would just take a ration. 
So God, would you do that? And meet us on the journey for your name's sake. We love you, Lord. If you agree with this prayer, Harlan, would you say amen? Hey, we'll see you next week as we pick up part two out of this series. We love you so much. See you next week.